soul, Lord. The waters of someone's soul is troubled, Lord God. I just speak peace to her right now, Lord God. And affirm that you are heard because our Father is with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Man, that was a rich time of prayer. Just give God some praise just for all the stuff that's going on in our community. Man, well, uh, it's just good to be uh, together again in the Word. Let's just close our eyes for prayer. Lord, we just thank you for uh, this time to open up your Word. Uh, as we have been exploring Jesus being supreme, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my Savior and Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. And I can't remember if I told this story before, but um, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, there was these, um, this a tradition in this family where um, each week uh, on Saturday, the mother would cook pancakes for um, the two brothers. And uh, one brother's name was Bobby, another one named was Johnny. And um, Bobby, um, the, the, the kind of what the rules were, where whoever got pancakes served the first, uh, um, the week before, gets a chance to get pancakes served um, first the following week. And so, you know, like siblings do, the brother and the, uh, you know, really started a fight about, you know, who got pancakes the week before last. And so, you know, the mother was a little, uh, you know, irritated by it, but she says, hey, this is a teachable moment. This is a great time for me to kind of parent my kids and disciple them. And so what she said was, uh, well, you know, if you want to be like Jesus, then what you would do is you would let your brother uh, eat pancakes first. And Bobby turned to Johnny and said, well, Johnny, how about you be Jesus this week? (laughs) You know, um, we oftentimes want other people to be like Jesus first. You know, we uh, oftentimes in our faith, we have um, maybe a, cons- a conservative vision of what uh, our faith ought to look like. And there might be some other people that might have a more liberal vision of what their faith ought to look like. And, um, you know, we want the other person to be more like Jesus first. This is a big issue right now in American Christianity. I don't know if you noticed this or not. Uh, I feel like I sit between this every single week, between one vision of a conservative vision of uh, uh, what their faith should look like and another one that might be a little more liberal or progressive uh, vision of what one's faith should look like. And no matter what side I'm on, everybody wants the other person to act like Jesus first. Can I get an amen? Have y'all seen this? And to be honest, what's going on in American Christianity is also what happens in East End Fellowship, too. You know, we have a, like, a progressive or a liberal tendency or maybe a conservative tendency. And thank God the text for today actually is the same context in which Paul is speaking into in a Colossian church. Whenever Paul is speaking to a, 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 a church, he has a diverse group of folks people that come from very different cultural backgrounds. Some folks uh, maybe grew up in a, tr- uh, uh, a conservative religious tradition called a Jewish faith. 
And so, you know, they had a clear understanding of gender roles, a clear understanding of like uh, uh, what, how people ought to act, what you should wear, what you shouldn't wear. Um, but they got some other folks that came in that were kind of considered heathens. Not to say that they weren't like religious at all. Like they might have had some religions, but they, their religion might have been a little bit more pagan, you know. Particularly in this particular time, you, if you were like a Gentile, you could have had a religion where you just like went to the temple to go have sex. Like that was part of the religion of that day. And let's just say when they both came in and they became followers of Jesus, they had different visions of how people ought to be engaging in their faith. And so today we're in um, Colossians two sixteen through 23. And I've been given the uh, task of um, uh, preaching on supremely supernatural. And so what do you do when you have two visions of how we ought to live and exist in Christian community and people have different views about what's going on? So would you uh, uh, rise in body and spirit um, as we read the text for the day? Therefore, and just real quick. Anytime you see a therefore, you got to understand what the therefore is there for, right? So we'll unpack that a little bit. But therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels and disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up and with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head and from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. And since you died with Christ to the elements of spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these rules which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Today I'll be talking about spiritual, I mean, supremely supernatural, and I got questions. All right, let's pray one more time. Lord, there's a lot in this text, and I pray, Lord, that you really would help us to hear what, what you're saying, not just only to us as individuals, but us as a church that's trying to live into this new reality. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's common that Paul is planting churches that are in very culturally different spaces, and you can't always make the same assumption that what this means for one people group means a certain thing for another people group. And, you know, um, so one of the things that Paul does in, when, in the beginning of his letter is that he uh, um, tries to find a thing that brings all people together in common. And that one thing that God, uh, um, that Paul brings 
to all people in common is he addresses them by their destiny, and that is as holy people. Holy people. He's like calling us out to be holy people. Now, here's the thing. I speak at a lot of Christian conferences. Early in my earlier days, you know, I was at a couple of pro-life conferences. You know, about 10, 12 years ago, I used to get invited to a lot of pro-life conferences, maybe lead some worship. I got invited to some worship conferences. I got worship to then start invited to like reconciliation conferences. I've been invited to Christian community development conferences. I've even gotten invited to the justice conference. Been to some religious liberties conference. You know one conference I've never been invited to? The holiness conference. Like, I don't even see nobody advertising for the holiness conference. You know, and it's really fascinating, too, because even at these Christian conferences, rarely do I hear people talk about holiness. But Paul is oftentimes referring to us as God's what? Holy people. And that is the defining definition of what it means of us being Christ followers is to be what? Holy people. And so not only does he refer to us as holy people, but he says brother and sisters. So, so it is, what he's saying is, is that not only just holy people, but your family. So great, Nick, like you got people that look different than you, that act different than you, that think different than you, and your commonality is that you're both holy people and that you're family. And I know some people come from dysfunctional families, but families ought to not kill one another. Families ought to say, like, even though you get on my last nerves, I need to not kill you, and I actually got to do something called love you. So it's God's holy people that are family, and he uses this term, he says, grace and peace. Now, what's really fascinating about the word grace and peace, grace is a Greek word named charis that, like, it means gift, but the word peace is the word shalom, which means flourishing. So in many ways, what Paul is saying is, he says, to God's holy people who are family, may God's gift of flourishing be amongst you. So God's, like, like Paul's prayer says, God's gift of flourishing may be amongst us. So in chapter uh, 1, verse uh, 5 through 6, Paul is kind of like encouraged about how God's peace and flourishing, that vision has been amongst them because one of the ways that is happening is that the gospel is bearing fruit and is growing amongst the people in Colossus. The church community is being a part of kind of what God has been doing, what the Spirit of God has been doing in the midst. And here's the thing that's, um, you know, it's kind of, I don't know if y'all were at, uh, mid-size this morning. But one of the things I love about every time that we get to mid-size, we do a practice of sharing testimonies of what God has been doing. Nobody's prompted. There's not a pastor or an elder that's like, hey, go and tell this story. A lot of times we don't even know what somebody's about to say. And we hear tremendous stories of what God is doing. I think if Paul was writing us a letter, he would say the gospel is bearing fruit and is growing and the church community is being a part of what God is doing. Even hearing, even amidst of the tears that we just had in our prayer time, for people to say, hey, I'm going to disrupt my whole life to uh, uh, adopt some children, some folks that are like deep on the march. I mean, a lot of us complain and cry and, and might even share a couple of tears about what's going on on the border. 
But for a family to say, hey, I'm going to disrupt my life to, 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 to foster care in this particular situation, God is up to something. So Paul continues to encourage in verse 10. He says, you know, I'm encouraging holy people that I want to see the gift of God's flourishing in your midst. That he says, live a life that's worthy of the Lord, pleasing God in every way and bearing fruit in every good work. So this is what it means to be the people of God and how do we live. And as we continue to cultivate uh, um, our working with God, he says, you grow in the knowledge of God. Now, in our Western culture, we think that we grow in knowledge by uh, reading books, listening to podcasts, listening to sermons, and as long as we fill our heads up, we'll know a lot about God. But I love the way that Eugene Peterson says it, that unless you digest and start to do the things that God tells you to do, then all you hear is mere gossip about God. And so what Paul is trying to encourage us to do is to say, like, hey, the way there's only a level of knowing that you get from actually being with God and doing with God. And so to be holy people that is seeking the flourishing of, of what God is, the gift that God has given us, is that we have to be a, a holy people in order to receive those gifts, but we just can't do it from a static space. We have to be on a mission with God and in relationship with God and relating with God so that we can be God's people that are receiving the inheritance of the kingdom of light. Man, there's a lot that God has given us as an inheritance. Paul refers to this a little bit when he talks about um, circumcision and and uh, Abraham and the, the 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 covenant that was made uh, of this promise of God way back in Genesis 12, where God made a promise that He would be a uh, bless Abraham, that He would make His family into, uh, His family into a great nation, so that they can be a blessing to that nation. But it was a hard, long journey, like a thousands of years journey. God wanted them to be a holy people, but they had a hard time following God in the holiness. And so what began to happen was God began to judge them and tried to try, tried to kind of steer them along the way. And there was a lot of fumbling and stumbling until uh, uh, they ended up uh, um, getting to, to Jesus. But see, one of the things that Abraham, that God used for Abraham was that he used this, this thing called circumcision to, to make sure to remind no matter how bad it looks that I still have marked you to be a holy people. And so in this marking, the Jewish people began to have this inheritance and they began to, uh, uh, um, you know, do the circumcision and say, hey, we are a holy people. But the problem was they weren't acting like a holy people. And eventually Jesus had to come to even make holiness possible. Now, here's the thing that's just important to understand a little about this inheritance that 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 they've received of God's blessing uh, uh, through Jesus is that this is one thing that they have um, that Jesus, when it came to the temptation of the flesh for the children of Israel, they had a hard time being obedient to God. But Jesus' first temptation, the devil came himself and gave him a temptation of the flesh, and he passed that temptation at the beginning of his ministry. So then the greatest temptation that Jesus had came at the end in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was like, hey, I ain't trying to be up on this cross. This is like a really hard, difficult thing to do. 
And so he was so stressed out that he was crying tears of blood. But then Jesus submitted and said, not my will, but thine will be done. And so Jesus literally allowed this flesh to be crucified so that holiness could be possible in our own lives. This is part of the inheritance that we've gotten, and this is an inheritance that came through the Jewish tradition. But we are oftentimes familiar with the uh, uh, um, the, the inheritance that we get from the Jewish tradition, but Paul in, in chapters 1 and 2 is also referencing an inheritance that we've gotten through some of the Greek and Roman tradition. So, you know, um, Colossus was like in the midst of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is... Um, was the greatest empire of its day. And empires always establish peace and prosperity through violence and marginalization. Like empires, like, you know, they'll make a promise in order to kind of keep, uh, um, keep the peace. They'll, they'll do things that will kind of help you forget that it took violence to get there. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, and that's a prime example of what happened, Right? I like how um, um, John Stewart said, he said, I, 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 um, my family and I celebrated Thanksgiving the old traditional way. Um, I met my neighbors, invited to my house, and three days later, I killed them all. You know? <laughs> That's a traditional Thanksgiving day. Some of y'all will get that on the way home. Sorry about that. <laughs> but kind of what begins to happen is that, you know, there are certain kind of philosophies that only can exist in a context of privilege and a context of prosperity. And so Caesar, um, in order to maintain the myth of the empire, that the empire is the source and the reason uh, 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 for the prosperity, that Caesar is actually the reason for the prosperity that is going on in the Roman Empire. And so he did this for two, one of two ways. One way was he would put his face on the coins to be a symbol and an icon of prosperity. So when you see in, in, in uh, 1 Colossians 15, the, the, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that is a subversive way of saying that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. When he says that for him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether on thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in all things whole together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn amongst the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Basically, Paul is saying that Caesar is not in charge. Jesus is larger than in charge. And large and in charge over the empire. Now, the thing is, is that so many of us have been shaped by the empire. Like, you cannot live in the empire and not be shaped by the empire. The empire says that I define reality, that I am the reason why the economy is great. It's my military power that's, that's great. I mean, like, all of these kind of political talking points, it's saying, like, have faith in these things. And when you live in the empire, you can... So you can take on certain kind of philosophies that uh, you think are Christian, but really are, are, are really baptized in the way of the empire. You're Christianizing things that aren't really Christian. 
And so it says, for God was pleased to have all this fulfill, uh, fullness dwell in him, and through him he's reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or things on heaven, but making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So what Paul is, 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 is explaining in this is that he's making, that Christ has made holiness possible and a change possible, not for only just personal sins, but also systemic sins. And Christ is in the midst of reconciling all things, both the brokenness in us personally, but the brokenness of what's going on in society. And so, you know, one of the things, the way that the empire uh, um, used to, the second way that they used to kind of keep the uh, um, the myth of empire of being the reason for peace and prosperity is they would do these things, uh, what Dr. Cornell West calls weapons of mass distractions. Basically, they would entertain people to death, like literally. So they would have these things called spectacles. Like if you ever seen the Coliseum, what they would do is they would have like MMA fights with animals, and like, and, or just they would have these uh, um, people would fight one another, and 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 pretty much, if you went into that Coliseum, most likely you were going to die. And so what they did was uh, um, the night before they would have um, this this little fight, they would um, have a feast amongst the people who they became friends, those prisoners that were like in that space were about to be some of the folks that would fight. And they would have a feast where they would kind of have their last supper together. And then they would go into the Coliseum and if somebody survived, they survived. But most likely that was their last meal. Well, we know about the Last Supper and how that worked for the Passover across the Jewish story, but this is also intersecting with the Roman story, where the Jesus was with his friends and had this Last Supper right before he was about to be crucified, which was one of their biggest spectacles. Crucifixion was another spectacle that they would entertain people, and they potentially could offer up somebody free like they did Barabbas, but they decided to actually crucify Jesus. And and Jesus has the showdown between Pilate where he says, uh, um, hey, you think that you're in charge. I could get a legion of angels to just tear up this spot, but what in essence, I'm going to do is subversively overthrow the empire through sacrificial service and love. And so this is what's happening in uh, uh, Colossians 1 and Colossians 2. And this is a model that helps us to understand how we ought to live as God's holy people who are family amongst people with different philosophical differences. All humans, whether we articulate it or not, we want the gift of flourishing in our midst. But holiness is the distribution channel that God uses for us to experience the gift of flourishing. Holiness is the, I'm glad my wife came today. Only person who gave me an amen on the holiness piece. <laughs> holiness is the distribution channel that God uses for us to experience the gift of flourishing. And whether you're a conservative or you're a liberal, we often substitute human philosophy for holiness. Like, we might have a different vision or for this, but in essence, like, our philosophical ideas are the things that we try to substitute 
for actual holiness. If you're uh, a religious conservative, you oftentimes are more committed to your tradition than the new thing that God might be doing. And so holiness might be being okay with leaning. It might be different than your tradition, but it's the thing that God's telling you to do. Or you could be a little bit uh, uh, more free. You might want to exercise more of your freedom in ways that Jesus is like, no, I want you to actually ask some restraints. Both parties might have an idea and a vision for flourishing, but it oftentimes doesn't require them to lean on the supremacy of Jesus. Man, we see this all the time in the news. We see this the way a lot of Christians engage. We see this in the ways that some of the things that we argue over. And so here's the the question. I'm going to read this text again, but it's like, what do you actually do when you're under the supremacy of Jesus and you need to live in a way uh, um, that, that, that says like, hey, we just, if you got two different contrasts and views of how to live, you got to choose something. You got to do something. So what do you do? Do people just do whatever they just want to do? Do you just kind of take somebody else's word for it? What do you practically do? And I think this text helps us to understand. So it says, I just explained the therefore, the therefore in, in 16. Can you put the text back up if it's not up? Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, here's the thing. The reason, why do we not let people judge us? And why should we not necessarily be the judge? Because what Aaron taught us last week is that Jesus is the supreme judge. And Jesus is a lot more gracious than we are. I'm gracious for people that are like me, that deal with the same struggles as me. But if you, if you, on the other side of that thing, you better be glad I ain't the judge, you know? And he says, even these things oftentimes a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so somehow in Christ, everything is there. Now, here's the thing about just, just take a quick minute to talk about mystery. There are some of us that like to have that, 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 that really like to have more certainty than we have mystery. And so we will kind of use religion to create certainty. But when you're talking about God, there's always going to be a certain level of mystery because you're talking about God. And the reason why God allows mystery is because God wants us to engage in discovery about the nature of who God is. And so this is a thing that we have to begin to know that we're not going to know everything. But just because we're not going to know everything doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything. And that's the other side to it where some people don't want to engage because God is too mysterious. But the mystery is actually a invitation to get to know Christ. Because everything in verse 17 says it's found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and in the worship of angels disqualify you. Now, here's, here's the thing. I, I spend a lot of time in between different circles. And, and, and some circles tend to be kind of like, hey, we're really open-minded. But they're really open-minded for everybody except the ones that think like the way they think. They're like fundamentalist conservatives, but they're also fundamentalist liberals. And if you think different than the way that, you know, you ought to think, then you get canceled. And so this is why I think verse 18 says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility, because they really ain't that humble. They're acting like they are, but they really aren't. It says, if such a person also goes into great details about 
what they have seen, and they are puffed up with idle notions of, um, by their unspiritual mind, a.k.a. they're super woke. But they aren't spiritual. They aren't people that's like living a submitted life to Jesus, but they are woke. And they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. One of the biggest things that I hear people say are are, are two narratives I hear. I'm spiritual. I'm not a Christian. Or I'm a Christian, like, I love Jesus, but I don't really fool with the church. If you're going to be Christian, you just can't walk around with a head. You got to have a body with it. And so the test of your love for Jesus is also being tested by how you love your body. You can't have the one without the other. And so they said they have lost connection with the head. So you want to look for fruit of people who are following Jesus. Man, I got all kinds of different friends. Some of them I call like my liberal friends or my extremely conservative friends. But the thing that I'm trying to like lean into with my friends is, do I see evidence of them following the head of Jesus? And do they hate the church or do they love the church? Because if you are a Christian that hates the church, then you're not a Christian that really truly loves Jesus. And I can get some knowledge from you, but I'm not going to get wisdom from you. I want to see some people that know how to apply knowledge in the context of the body of Christ. So it says, since you have died with Christ into the elements to spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Man, we oftentimes, I mean, we can be, I've heard somebody say it this way, that we can be practicing atheists, that we can be people who who actually act like they don't act like God exists. And so we follow these kind of, we just make up these kind of control systems instead of allowing people to follow Jesus and just be okay with like free will. Like, I mean, this is like a really wild thing. Like God has standards. At the same time, God allows us to not obey those standards. But oftentimes, we Christians don't allow people that same kind of grace. It's, it's a hard, difficult thing. Then, cause, I mean, to be honest, for me as a leader, I like controlling. I mean, like, I'd rather have things clean. I don't like a whole lot of mess about stuff I'm involved with. But there's a level of messiness that requires for people to be dependent on the Spirit and for allow Jesus to be the judge that is just a crazy thing that we see through our scripture, but we oftentimes don't see it in our churches. So do not handle, we make these rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but the lack of They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So as we see this conflict both in our American faith, as we see this conflict in uh, some of the challenges and tensions that we experience at Eastern Fellowship, when we have a conservative vision of, of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, and we have a liberal vision of what it seems to be a follower of Jesus, our moral vision 
can oftentimes become an idol. And we have to be careful of it. Just because we're doing something religious, there can be religious idols. And this is one of the things that Paul was trying to help the Jewish church begin to understand is that, that, that there, yes, God did speak for them to engage in circumcision, but God is then now saying that like, hey, you're making that into an idol. If you want to be circumcised, cool. If you don't, that's fine too. But don't make that an idol. There might even be different visions of how Christians ought to conduct ourselves, how we ought to live, or even a different moral vision of how transformation happens. But this is what we all need to do if we want to be like Jesus. We need to, one, remember that we're holy people. Two, we need to remember that we are family. And three, we need to remember that Jesus is the supreme judge. So practically, what do you do when you live as family, when you remember that you're holy people, uh, um, that you um, are going to live to reality that Jesus is the supreme judge, you have to live supremely supernatural. You have to rely on the Spirit being at work. And so, how do you know if the Spirit's being at work? How do you trust and lean into this? And these are the three things that I just gathered out of this particular text. One is, you can test to see if somebody is being supremely supernatural and allowing Jesus to be the judge, the supreme judge, is if one, whatever that person is doing, or whatever you're doing, doesn't increase your love for Jesus. A lot of times we can say we can do certain things in the name of Jesus, but it doesn't actually increase our love for Jesus. And so, one of the ways you can test is this, does your love for Jesus increase? One of the things that Paul was really encouraging, he loved their love for Jesus. The second thing is, does it increase your love for the body? There are so many people that could be so engaged in doing stuff for God but just hate the church, but that doesn't sound like the fruit of Jesus. And then the third thing is, are you increasing in holiness and decreasing in the lust of the flesh? This text ends with, they lack any value in restraining and sensual indulgence. Sensual indulgence definitely means sexual activity or, or just not live within a certain kind of restraint in your sexual body, but it also means in food. It means in how you live and certain, and certain things that you uh, do and don't do. Can your body, can you put, allow the spirit to be at work that leads towards restraint? Being supremely supernatural means that you're going to be a person that's both going to demonstrate love and you're going to demonstrate holiness. So just as we spend some time, the choir can get can go back to the platform. And um, I don't know where you lean. I mean, we got a diverse group of people here in our church. And uh, we live in a space where... Um, we who are leaders at this church, we definitely try to do what God's telling us to do. We definitely look at the text and try to see what God's telling us to be faithful. And, I mean, if you and I, our elders' meetings, I mean, man, we'd be going at it on the scriptures. But one of the things that we aren't is judgmental. And we really try to allow room. We call it like, what we call like a center set. We try to have Jesus at the center 
and just try to make sure people are oriented towards Jesus. And so what this means is our church is a lot more messy. That means that the spirit, like, we got to be like, hey, what is God telling you to do? And it's okay when we see that what you're saying that God's telling you to do doesn't line up with the scriptures and be like, well, God might be telling you, you might think God's telling you that, but we don't see it line up with the scriptures. But again, that's for your choice to make. But ultimately, we believe that if you're following Jesus, your love for Jesus should be cultivated. Your love for the body should be cultivated. Your love for your neighbor should be cultivated. And that, that the fragrance of Jesus and holiness and the way that you live is distinct, is set apart so that God's gift of flourishing is happening in your life. So just in the time as the choir sings, just spend a little time with the Spirit being at work. Um, asking the Lord, you know, God, I might be conservative, I might be liberal, I might have a different vision, I might not even be a Christian. But what I want to do is I want to lean more to be more supernaturally, uh, uh, supremely supernatural, that you're, that you're actually having a divine encounter with God. That's it. I can't be a judge. I can't be your savior. I can't be your king. But what I want to do, encourage you, is to spend some time with God so that you can engage the supernatural supremacy of God. In Jesus' name, Lord, just speak to us, lead us, do the things that need to be done in people's hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.